Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. America is the technological marvel of the world and has been since World War II. But we can't take this leadership for granted. So today, I'll be speaking with Tony Mills to discuss what policymakers should do to secure this advantage for future generations. Tony Mills is the director of the R Street Institute Science Policy Program, and he was previously the editor of Real Clear Policy. He and Mark Mills recently published an excellent article in the New Atlantis titled, The Science Before the War. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. In your essay, uh, you describe America's R&D efforts during World War II. And currently during this pandemic, there's a lot of interest in getting you know, therapeutics and a vaccine out uh, as quick as possible. And so people will say, well, we need a Manhattan Project. World War II remains a sort of go-to example uh, of America coming together in a crisis uh, to create some sort of big scientific uh, breakthrough. Is that, what do you think of that analogy? And is that, is that a, a helpful one for the current times? Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, it is, in a certain sense, I think it, it is the right analogy. Um, and, 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 and the sense is this, that World War II was really the first time that the federal government became uh, a large scale investor in and even um, producer of uh, scientific research. So the Manhattan Project, but also the Rad Lab at MIT, which was the government's um, research uh, project in, that led to the development of radar, programs on computing. There were a whole range of government-led research programs during the war. This is really the first time that the government uh, began to do this. Uh, it's really the origin of what, uh, what is sometimes called by scholars big science. Um, and so it, it sort of it sets an important precedent. Uh, and I think you can see after the war, uh, the Apollo program uh, and other large scale government efforts uh, in scientific research are in that mold. Now, I think that there's a, a way in which this trope gets used, um, which is uh, more problematic. And that's part of what we're trying to get at in the piece, which is the idea that the government can kind of order up scientific knowledge and direct it to solve practical problems. Now, in a certain sense, the government clearly can and has done that, um, as with the Manhattan Project. But what we try to do is, is tease out the kind of prehistory um, and, and the sorts of scientific discoveries that were necessary uh, in order for those more practically oriented research projects to be possible. One reason those efforts were successful is that they weren't just starting from nothing, from base zero. They were drawing upon what was already a fairly large reservoir uh, of, of scientific knowledge, right? That's right. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, there is a kind of the, the idea that uh, scientific discovery can generate technological breakthroughs has sort of become unfashionable, at least in certain policy circles nowadays. Um, you know, on the one hand, there's the, the kind of received view that technology is changing rapidly and, uh, and so on and so forth. But um, when you look at what kind of research is underway, uh, both within and with, you know, outside the government, uh, it tends to be more of the applied research and development variety. 
And I mean, we could talk about this more. I mean, there's, there's a sort of general trend that you can trace going back to World War II where um, applied research and development has eclipsed basic science, eclipsed basic science um, not only because the private sector has taken on more and more of R&D, but also within government. Um, whereas in the mid-century, the view that was promoted by Vannevar Bush, FDR science advisor, who also oversaw a lot of the wartime research, was that basic science um, was needed as the kind of reservoir, as you say, for technological invention. That idea isn't really, um, as I say, isn't as fashionable nowadays. Um, and one of the things that we try to do in this, in this essay is to look at the historical evidence. And what's really striking is you take those three iconic inventions, the atom bomb, the computer, uh, and radar, and each of them depend on a whole set of highly theoretical discoveries uh, going back to the 1800s or farther. Um, and they would be unimaginable without that kind of prehistory. Now, it's not to say that you have a direct line. You know, you have a scientific discovery and then two years later you have the atom bomb. I mean, this is a, a complex, um, in many cases, long-term process. Um, but it's a pretty striking pattern, I think. Well, one thing I really liked was that you uh, really highlighted really sort of the, 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 the string of sort of just pure research and pure scientific discovery that led to things, uh, particularly uh, radar, where that wasn't necessarily where anybody thought the research was going to lead. That was never anybody's intention, but it was just pure scientific discovery over decades, if not, you know, you know much longer, that led to a, an amazingly practical technology uh, but of course, scientists in the 40s and, and 30s were able to draw upon all those, what I'm sure at the time seemed to be completely unrelated discoveries. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the way I sometimes think about it is if you, you know, the distinction can be drawn in terms of why questions versus how to questions. Now, it's a little bit rough and ready, but, you know, if you're asking, um, you know, why is nature the way it is, or I'm, look, I'm searching for explanations of, you know, the way pollen grains suspended in fluid behave. Uh, and to make sense of that, I postulate the existence of invisible molecules. Uh, this is sort of classically scientific research. I'm trying to understand nature. Um, similarly with the development, I think a, a very uh, striking example is George Boole, English mathematician's uh, work in the 1840s, um, trying to describe the mathematics of the human intellect, as he called it. Um, what he's doing is very theoretical, abstruse stuff, trying to apply the formalism of algebra to math to, to formal logic. Um, and it turns out that the system he develops um, may can be applied to electrical relay circuits. And that's something that Claude Shannon, the American engineer, figured out almost 100 years later. Um, and that laid the foundation for modern digital computing. Now, you know, people knew that logic could have practical implications, uh, uh, different People try to develop computing type machines going back uh, many, many years. But the key insight wasn't driven by any attempt to develop something practical. Uh, and, and there's a similar story with, with the radar, as you say. I mean, you can't, you think of it this way, you can't just develop the technique for um, uh, tracking and locating objects using radio waves, which is what radar is, unless you know that radio, radio waves exist. Um, similarly with the atom bomb, you can't split the atom unless you know that there are atoms. Um, and so I think it's that kind of idea that, that's, that is very powerful, um, which Vannevar Bush saw 
Um, he had developed a prototypical computer. He was Claude Shannon's advisor at MIT. Um, he had worked at the intersection of a lot of cutting edge science and a lot of engineering. So he, he knew firsthand how these theoretical discoveries could be useful. And I think we've kind of lost our sense of what, what a basic scientist, how, how uh, kind of foundational basic scientific discoveries can be. And we tend to think of basic science as sort of just long-term research. Um, but really, I think if we think of it in terms of these, key, these, these foundational insights, discoveries, um, it opens up a broader kind of path. To bring this back to, to coronavirus, you know, think about um, the way that we, the way modern vir virology works, right? We, we use gene sequencing um, to develop, uh, uh, you know, testing techniques to uh, develop, develop vaccines. Um, well, uh, we had to discover the gene. Uh, without that, we wouldn't be doing any of those uh, uh, those techniques, right? So um, it's that kind of uh, basic scientific discovery and progress that we are trying to tease out in this piece. What was Vannevar Bush's vision for what sort of government-funded science would look like after the war, what the American sort of scientific research complex would look like versus sort of what we actually got? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So he, um, his vision was, look at what the government was able to do during wartime, these incredible technological feats. Uh, and his argument was that the government was able to do that um, because of this backlog of scientific discovery that we've been talking about. And so what he proposed was to continue uh, government investment in science, um, which he, he liked to say, to continue government support of science, but remove the controls. So support without control. And the idea was to allow um, the government to stimulate scientific research, but to not try to steer it toward practical objectives, but to allow scientists to set their own research agendas. And it's worth noting that the live alternative at the time was very similar to a lot of contemporary views, which was that, no, 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 if the government's going to be investing money, it should be steering it toward practical objectives. Um, and there was an alternative proposal um, gaining a lot of political steam during the 1940s that uh, Vannevar Bush was sort of angling to, uh, to outmaneuver um, with, uh, with President Roosevelt. And the, the result, there was a kind of political debate, a number of bills on the Hill, and uh, eventually um, uh, in uh, 1950, Congress uh, sent a bill to uh, now Truman's desk, which uh, was signed into law and created the National Science Foundation. And this was, in a sense, the result of the Bush vision. Um, but what Bush had really imagined was a single federal agency that would support basic science that was done outside the government. And he was thinking here, especially of um, university uh, and non-governmental laboratories. Um, by the time NSF was created, there were a host of other federal agencies that were doing, uh, spending way more on basic and non, uh, you know, and, and applied research and development. So he didn't quite get what he was hoping for, um, but he did, I would say, move the needle um, in the sense, uh, very considerably, in the sense that uh, the post-war uh, paradigm. Uh, involved a lot of government support for basic science. And as I say, that ratio has, has almost completely flipped nowadays. So what sort of scientific research does the government do and who is doing it? And how would you describe the nature of that research? Um, you know, 
basic research, applied research, mission-driven research, there's all these different phrases. So what are we doing right now? Right now, we do a lot of different things. Um, what, we, what we wound up with in the post-war period is a pluralistic research uh, environment. And that we still have a, a very much a pluralistic one. Um, you know, a whole host of federal agencies fund um, basic applied research and also uh, you know, product development type research, both in-house and uh, in other entities that get government funding, uh, whether they're private uh, uh, research institutions or university labs. Um, you know, there are the national laboratories themselves, which are governmental. Um, you know, so everything from the Department of, of Energy to uh, NASA to NIH, um, which is the largest funder of uh, basic research today uh, in the government, um, will you know, fund a whole host of things. And the model for that varies by uh, agency and program. Um, you know, NIH itself, I believe it's about 80% of their um, research is extramural, is not done you know, on the NIH campus, goes to outside institutions and so on. So there is a kind of Bushian you know, framework, I think, built into that to some degree. But what is notable, I think, is the general trend um, toward more applied research and development. And you can see that, as I say, both in the private sectors taking over the, the majority of R&D in the country, uh, and then within the government's uh, own R&D portfolio, uh, a growing emphasis on applied research and development. And I think one of the lessons of World War II in this respect is that that, that might be a cause for some worry. Uh, if you look at the tremendous success uh, in technological uh, uh, development in the post-war period, I think there's a pretty good case to be made that it was at least partly the result of a lot of scientific uh, progress that was, you know, what we would call basic research. Right. And you may not have these numbers um, sort of on the you know, tip of your tongue, but how much are we spending on basic research uh, by the government today? I don't know, share of GDP or something uh, versus, well, versus let's say in 1980, I kind of want to, or 1975, I want to kind of go after, I kind of want to separate out the Apollo program and all that kind of spending, but sort of what is, so what is the direction as a share of GDP? Yeah, so I can tell you that uh, as a percentage of overall R&D spending, um, the, the uh, a big change that happened the past few years was that the federal government is no longer the biggest single source of even basic research. It's about 40% uh, of overall uh, U.S. spending on basic research. Um, and the rest is a mix. With, you know, the second largest share would be from the private sector and then a mix of uh, philanthropy and, and uh, you know, not-for-profit sources. So that, that's a big, uh, a big change. But I think the larger one is that the overall fraction of what we spend uh, on, on basic versus R&D uh, has shifted quite considerably. Um, so, you know, I believe I believe the, the, the latest numbers are uh, in the order of uh, 30 billion uh, federal spending on basic. And, you know, that's you know, a small fraction of what the private sector spends on R&D overall. How much should we be spending? How do we know? We look at what China's spending and we say, well, we have to spend either that or 5x that? How do we how do we begin to figure that out? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I, I don't think there's any uh, magic number or anything like that. I think that the argument here is more the trend. Um, you know, one of the points that Bush makes, and I should say, you know, Bush didn't get everything right by any means, but I do think he, he had a core insight that's worth taking seriously. And one of the points he makes is that unless, unless we kind of put our thumb on the scale a little bit for basic science, there's a natural kind of drift toward utilitarianism in our funding. It makes a lot of good sense. There's a good reason why the private sector is not investing most of its money on basic science. Um, and the government, of course, needs to invest in you know military research and all kinds of applied things as well. Um, but it's, it's sort of a, a, a issue of the overall trajectory. Um, and, and I think there are different ways you can, kind of proxies you can use to think about what the right, what the right amount is. Again, I'm not, I don't think there's a Goldilocks uh, uh, number or ratio, um, but if you, if you kind of survey a lot of the scientific organizations that include the practitioners of basic science, almost all of them will say that they don't um, have enough money. Now, Scientists tend to say that, right? I mean, um, that's always been the case. Um, but there are lots of other indicators that our progress in science uh, is slowing down, or at least isn't isn't things aren't kind of operating the way that we might prefer. Um, you know, if you look at, for example, the state of physics, a lot of folks are worried that there's a certain kind of stagnation happening there. The the basic model of, of uh, the standard model of particle physics has been around for about half a century. Um, the situation in the life sciences is uh, a little better, but not all that different. And many of the key breakthroughs there uh, took place at a time when uh, there was substantially more uh, federal support, uh, at least as a percentage of uh, for uh, basic research in life sciences. So around 1980, NIH became the, uh, the biggest uh, dispenser of basic scientific research. It used to be uh, NASA before that. Um, and so I think if you kind of look at all these trends together, the picture you get is one where we're not uh, kind of getting as much out of scientific research as we used to, and we're not putting as much in. Um, and I think that it, this may partly explain some of the uh, productivity problems we have generally when it comes to innovation. Do you think we have the political patience for for what what I think I would agree? I I would like the you know government to spend more on sort of this pure research. Do we have that kind of patience anymore? I sort of remember uh, these reports that would come out uh, from Congress in the past that would look at what government was funding, and there would be these kind of mocking reports that oh they would be spending money on the on on this kind of research, which just seemed to be crazy stuff. It didn't seem to, it didn't seem to have any real world application, and you know people would put out lists of like, you know, the government's ten craziest research projects. And I just you know, but of course, golden yeah. fleece, right? Exactly. So, do we do we have the patience uh, for uh, and the will to, to to fund that for that kind of funding versus stuff where we can say, well, here's where it might lead. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's a tough question. I mean, I think, uh, obviously, uh, these budgetary questions are always going to be constrained by the political realities. And I mean, and I should say they should be right. I mean, it's a perfectly reasonable um, thing to expect that uh, uh, government use of taxpayer dollars are going to generate some kind of benefit for society. Otherwise, what's, uh, you know, so uh, I think that there may be a certain limit to um, how far you can push the argument. Um, that said, I think that 
this is part of the reason why I think making the, the argument is important, because if what we want um, is technological innovation, say, I mean, there are a lot of um, very genuine worries about uh, productivity, for example. Um, if we want to be able to uh, better handle a public health crisis like the one we are hopefully pulling out of, um, you know, think uh, again, going back to the example I used, we are able to even be thinking about developing a virus, uh, a vaccine to a virus we didn't know existed five minutes ago because of a backlog of scientific research, um, some of it quite basic research uh, into uh, uh, genomics and, and other fields. Um, so there, there is, and this goes back 40 plus years. Um, so that's long term. Um, but you can see the, uh, the return on investment uh, nowadays. And so if we want to be able to have the, the kind of reservoirs and resources um, to do these technological things, um, I think we have to take seriously that this, this may be partly what we need to do. You know, if you look historically, the number of countries that have been able to sustain um, uh, flourishing uh, institutions of science and technology, there really aren't very many of them. Um, and they tend to have in common this, um, that dual um, kind of science technology um, uh, pattern. You can think of Germany in the late 19th century, um, the, the uh, Soviet Union for a certain period of time, um, the United States, uh, maybe the UK for a certain period of time, but there aren't really all that many examples of it. Um, whereas uh, I, the tendency toward utilitarianism is, is much is much stronger um, and I think more universal. So I think there, it may be part of the special sauce, in other words. And so I think it, it's something that, that, that we should take seriously. And a final question, Tony. Um, uh, I, I, was I was having a conversation with someone and they were you know, saying, what, what would be like some big ideas, uh, you know, for this, you know, for some for science funding? And I sort of sarcastically said, you know, DARPA for pandemics because i think that's like an easy thing to say some people prefer darpa uh defense project research agency and they know it comes up it has a, had a big role with autonomous driving is, is there a new agency or a new structure that you would like to see just briefly put into place or do we just sort of keep keep the basic structure but maybe refocus it or spend more money on it what are sort of the the ultimate sort of policy actions you would like to see taken Sure. So I, I could say first, what I would not like to see is the kind of here are the practical goals and let's you know throw money at that and see if we can we can solve the problem. I think you know in some discrete cases that may be perfectly fine. You know if we're talking about developing a, a vaccine for the novel coronavirus uh, based on what we know about its you know uh, its underlying uh, you know virology or whatever. Okay, but the kind of large scale, we need a you know a moonshot kind of thing. I think the danger is that we are not very imaginative, and by we, I mean people that are not, you know, uh, developing the scientific ideas about how uh, discovery innovation uh, in progress really takes place. And there are a lot, we could, you know, talk ad nauseum about, about this. There are a lot of examples of um, kind of serendipitous discoveries, you know, development in physics leads to breakthroughs in parts of biology, whatever. So I think it's very difficult to put your thumb on the scale uh, ahead of time and come up with the right answer. So that's that's what I would not like to see. Now, in terms of policies, I think there are a lot of things that are, there are a lot of problems with our current R&D uh, framework. Um, and so I, what I would 
what I would propose rather than having a new agency or something like that would be thinking seriously about how we can reform what we are currently doing. There are a lot of problems with um, incentive structures uh, in the academy uh, that uh, arguably are, are you know, leading some research down uh, you know, roads that maybe are not uh, uh, so desirable. There are you know, problems with uh, you know, the average age of a lot of recipients of federal grants is getting um, older. Um, there is a, a bias toward big science versus small science that maybe goes too far in that direction. Um, you know, I think there's the general trend of biasing applied research and development over basic uh, that I mentioned. And so there are a lot of different ways we could experiment with new R&D models, um, you know, giving smaller grants to a wider range of people. There's a sort of uh, problem of uh, too many uh, kind of uh, capturing of uh, federal money by uh, well-established um, institute, research institutions. Um, so trying to diversify the pool of recipients. Um, so I think there are a lot of things that we could kind of put into the toolkit to, to, to innovate in how we uh, stimulate R&D. Um, but there are kind of the big, uh, these larger trends uh, away from basic science that I would want to, uh, I would want to counteract. My guest today has been Tony Mills. Tony, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much.